Good morning, everyone. How are we? Wonderful. Well, if you've got a Bible, uh, either on your phone or there in your lap, you want to tap or turn your way to Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be today as we continue, as Lorenzo mentioned, in our series, Collective Again. As we've been going through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, we've been kind of naming or looking at this, um, this, this letter through this idea of collective again, asking these questions of what kind of community and church are we going to be on the other side of 2020? And many of us, I, I've you know, talked about this every single week, on the other side of uh, this kind of pandemic year, we've asked questions maybe individually about who are we going to be. This leading some people to leave and move out of Los Angeles, other people moving too. Some of you that are joining us that have been a part of maybe some other community and you've been kind of, you know, trafficking halfway across, you know, Los Angeles every single Sunday or looking for some a more integrated communal sort of church experience that's brought you to collective. These are the sort of questions that after 2020 we're asking, what kind of person, what kind of church are we going to be on the other side of 2020, specifically as we're talking about our live stream and stuff, you know, on the other side of isolation and social distancing, a deeper sense of community, of us living our lives um, um, with one another, around one another, that this is a, a deep conviction of us. But one of the things is, as we came to the text in, in the back half of chapter two of Ephesians today is, is we've got to acknowledge that more happened in 2020 than just a pandemic year. More happened within the, the life of our city and our nation than just us living through a pandemic. This past year also marked a number of these catalysts, catalytic moments around the racial disparities, the injustices in our nation. This is what kicked off, many of you remember, our 12-week study in the story of justice, looking at the issue of, of justice and righteousness all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And so as we ask, what sort of a community are we going to be on the other side of 2020? We also have to ask, in light of what we went through, what does the church bring to the issues and the questions of race, of reconciliation, and justice? Back during the height of the civil rights movement in Harlem, New York, Malcolm X used to regularly work to recruit individuals to the nation of Islam as he would stand outside of black churches in Harlem, New York, and as they let out on Sunday, he would look to the crowds emerging and he would shout, y'all been in church the last three hours and look, nothing about your society has changed. Talking to African-American Christians, he asked, what difference has your Jesus made to the sociological circumstances in which you find yourselves? What difference does the gospel that y'all just spent three hours preaching and singing and praying about make? What difference does the church make on these issues? For Malcolm X, at the height of the civil rights movement, he saw the white church as at best complicit in the ravaging injustice within the land. And the black church, in many ways, is an institution powerless to make those changes. But Malcolm X as we would have it, was not the only voice addressing the church during the civil rights movement. Pastor Martin Luther King Jr., among others, brought a message to the church based out of a conviction that the gospel, that the church does indeed make a difference, or at least it should. And this is not if the church were to tack on some extracurricular initiatives around justice, but rather if the church would recapture the full scope of the gospel and the gospel-made family that is the church. 
their conviction came out of a robust biblical theology. And if you don't believe me, you can go back to the 12 weeks and 12 hours of, of teaching that we spent on this topic. But today, as we look to Ephesians 2, at least the back half, we find another one of those texts that was an integral moment, an integral text for those speaking to the church, calling them and saying, actually, the gospel, the heritage, the faith that's been handed down to us does speak to these issues far more than we allow it. So that's what brings us to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11 today. Why don't we open, once again, if you don't got your Bibles or your, your phone there, you can follow on the slides behind me. Let's read this text together. Where the Apostle Paul writes, oh wait, pause before we do. Uh, as again, reminder, is as we come through the text, there's going to be yous that you're going to hear me call y'alls. And that is not because I'm injecting anything into the text, and it's not to make my North Carolina wife more at home. I'm not inserting anything to the text. I am trying to give the closest equivalent to what Paul wrote, that he is not writing you singular to individuals, but y'all to plural, second person plural for the grammar nerds out there. And I'm saying y'all because yous guys just doesn't carry the same weight. So with that being said, let's read y'all y'all together. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, therefore remember that at one time y'all Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that y'all were at that very time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and being without God in the world. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, y'all who once were far off have been brought near by the very blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in these ordinances that he might create in himself one new man or one new humanity in place of the two, thereby making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so he came and preached peace to y'all who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, that is Christ, we both have access in now one unified collective spirit to God the Father. So then, y'all, you're no longer strangers or aliens to one another, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household, that is the family of God. That family being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone foundation in whom, in Christ, that whole structure being joined together, grows into this holy temple in the Lord. In him, y'all also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. And so, Father, we are here one more week following the story of Ephesians, believing that, that you've, you've set this book before our community for such a time as this. As we move into the other side of uh, our pandemic year, and not just our pandemic, but this year of questions around justice, about racial inequality, of prejudice and violence, and, and hostility, to use Paul's words. What difference does your gospel make? Give us ears to hear. Give us a heart to feel, eyes to see, and feet to carry this out as we look at this passage today. In your name we pray. Amen. 
So let's move back to the beginning of our text here in verse 11, where Paul starts with that word, therefore. Therefore, this way that Paul says, what I'm about to say connects immediately to what I just said. Everything in uh, verse 11 and following is all a therefore to verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. Now, though we believe that Scripture is inspired, those, those little breaks that you may have in your Bible as you look down of, of kind of those headings and those breaks, those are not inspired. Those are really helpful tools, at least most of the time, in helping us follow the big ideas of where the text is going. But sometimes it puts a division where Paul didn't intend there to be one. Paul is connecting everything that we just read flows from what he said in verses 1 through 10, what we talked about last week. Our collective story that though humanity was dead in our trespasses and sins, we've been made alive through the work of Christ. That though we were enslaved to the world, to the powers, and to our own flesh, we now are reigning with Christ over those things. Though we were children of wrath, we are now the workmanship of God. All of this in and through Jesus Christ. Paul says, therefore, in light of that, moving from that, I'm still talking about that. He opens with... Y'all Gentiles in the flesh. Do you notice what Paul is doing here? Is he is moving from what we could call the vertical components of the gospel to now this horizontal implications. As a Jewish Christian, Paul now turns his attention to how the gospel plays out in our relationships. In particular, those ethnically different than us. Any amens? Y'all got masks on, so I don't know where you're at. Y'all could be sleeping with your eyes open like Gandalf. You guys got to give me something here so I know you're tracking. Paul is moving from everything Christ has done. And now he says, therefore, and he starts talking about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. Those particularly ethnically different than one another. Specifically where two times in our text he says those who have hostility towards one another. These Gentiles in the flesh that he moves and immediately starts talking about the, the uncircumcision, by, called that by who is the... He's quoting derogatory slurs that these circumcision Jewish people would use against the Gentiles. They would refer to them as the uncircumcision. It was a, a slur that he quotes from. He doesn't say, no, I'm not calling you that. But he says, by, you know, they call you that. He further details this hostility that's existing in verses 12 where he talks about the separation that we have with one another, the alienation between these groups, the strangers, the foreigners to one another, all of these components coming together, Jew and Gentile, all of this language, the divisions along ethnic, cultural, political lines. And then in verse 14, he continues this separation even further. He talks about the dividing wall of hostility. This physical separation between Jew and Gentile. Paul most likely is referring back to the temple in Jerusalem. He would have grown up around where you had the outside, what was called the court of the Gentiles, and then the inner courts, which was the courts for the Jewish people to come and worship. And running through that temple was not just the court and the, of the Gentiles and then the court of the Jews, but this, this wall, this giant wall that ran through with signs that we now have talked about in history, but we've actually archaeologically recovered now. That to the effect of says, you know, if you're a Gentile, you know, if you walk past this boundary line, your own death is on your own head. Paul says that this dividing wall, this separation that runs between us, this source of hostility. And this is not an exclusively Jewish thing. We've got walls of dividing hostility all throughout history. 
You know the one human creation that we can see from space? is the Great Wall of China. What a testament to humanity's story. Our greatest thing that you can see with the naked eye from space is the dividing wall of hostility. For many of us growing up around the time, we remember the Berlin Wall. Even today, we talk about walls at our southern border, even more cages, smaller walls, even the practice of redlining within our country's story. We are talking about dividing walls of hostility. Even more, Paul then moves into these dividing uh, laws, not just the law that is good, but as it was expressed in these ordinances of circumcision, of kosher diet, of the feast of the Jewish people. These things that were meant to be distinguishing differential markers became causes of division and hostility between one another. We see this every time people's groups get reduced into their stereotypes, or we allow what's about us and separates us to distinguish this hostility. So you see what Paul's doing here. Like last week, Paul gave us this really explicit before portrait of what humanity was like before God, that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, enslaved to the the powers and the devil in our own flesh, that we were children of wrath. Paul now retells that same story. No longer through a vertical lens of our relationship to God, but now a horizontal lens, our relationship to one another. He moves from dead and enslaved to now separated and alienated. Here's what Paul's trying to get you guys to understand, get me to understand, get us to understand, is that the church is both a vertical and a horizontal story. It has both an X and a Y axis. I'm indebted to Dr. Brian Loritz for that, this dynamic of what we're going to be developing today, among others for this paradigm. The gospel is a vertical and a horizontal story. If there is one thing I want you to walk away with today, it is that. The gospel is a vertical and a horizontal story, and it brings implications on both of those realities and relationships. And so Paul opens this up, talking about that our relationship to one another is actually indicative of, a mirror of our our relationship to God. Our separation from God is seen and mirrored in our separation and our alienation to one another. There is a vertical and horizontal parallels that are happening here. If you think I'm crazy, you can find the positive of this in Jesus. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? What does he say? It's a two-part commandment, to love God with all that you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. Oh man, don't do that. That was vertical and horizontal at the same time. Broke my brain. There is a vertical and horizontal. Do you see that this is, this is Jesus' way of understanding? Paul's not introducing anything new here. Neither am I. And so similarly, our vertically being dead and enslaved, our wrath, the hostility that we have towards God is mirrored in our hostility towards others, specifically around our ethnic and national and cultural and political lines. All of this goes back to the opening pages of the Bible where immediately after sin separates humanity from God, it it causes hostility between man and woman. Chapter 4, not even like, you know, a page over in my Bible from the, the fall and sin and all the implications, you've got brothers killing one another. The fall continues where you have hostility and violence against family members all the way to chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel and you've got nations against one another. See, we cannot separate the vertical from the horizontal because the Bible doesn't separate them. 
In Paul's day, as he's detailing here, you have a Gentile majority group in the city of Ephesus and the surrounding areas that, that exist within a political group that's been oppressing Jews through violence of systems and structures of how they're going after it. And the Jewish minority in response is meeting the Gentiles with contempt, separation from them. So much so that if a, a Jew were to marry a Gentile at this time, they would host a, a funeral for the child who's married this Gentile. They are dead to us. This is the sort of distinguishing markers, the separation, the alienation that's happening. And these similar horizontal dynamics of hostility are ravaging our own nation. You don't need to spend five minutes scrolling through your timeline to see it. And so this is Paul setting up the story, the, the vertical and now horizontal, the conditions of the story, the brokenness of this world. And in the same way where last week we, we found out that we were vertically dead and then Paul shifted to this but God moment, we have now been made alive, we ought to be expecting that after setting up our horizontal death, there should be some in Christ horizontal shift, right? And so what do we find in verse 13 then? Look right with me, hear it in. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, y'all who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The shift has happened. Just like last week, we were dead and enslaved and that we were children of wrath, but God, the vertical reversal, that we are now made alive and resurrected and reigning. So here too, though alienated, though separated, but now in Christ, we have been unified and, and set within one another in Christ. All of this was accomplished, how does Paul say? Not through tacking on some institutional side project, how does this unity come about? By the blood of Christ. This is a key question of the text. How does the death or the blood of Christ, as he puts it here, unite Jew and Gentile and with that other groups? How does, how does this come about? For Paul, he seems to think that all the hostility that groups have between one another, that, that somehow was broken, died, and reconciliation has happened through the cross. How does this happen? In verses 14 and 15, he continues. He talks about in his flesh, that is, on the cross, Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility. On the cross, in his flesh, he abolished the law, and Jesus himself says he did not come to abolish the law, but specifically what Paul is emphasizing here is, is expressed in those ordinances, those, those boundary marker lines that become a source of hostility. Paul sees the cross as a tool of destruction here. Do you catch this language that Paul's using? You can nod. Anyone? Yes? Cool. You guys are all, either you're really zoned in or, or I'm just up here by myself. I'll take it either way. Paul sees the cross as a tool of destruction. The immediate image that comes to my mind was the, um, these pictures around the Berlin Wall. Um, right before I was born, this sledgehammer. They, they start breaking out these sledgehammers to break down what had divided Germany. Run the line through. This is good destruction, right? Good breakdown, right? Paul, in talking about the cross, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility, this is the image he has in his mind of what the cross does. The walls of hostility that we set up, somehow in the cross, have been broken down. That, that the cross is this sledgehammer in the hands of God against those walls that we build, both the literal and those cultural ones. Verse 16, he begins to develop, okay, how did this come about? In verse 16, he says, thereby killing the hostility through his cross. In the Greek that Paul's writing, it's literally by killing the hostility in himself. This is, y'all go get a cup of coffee and walk around and just think about that. 
I'm, I'm a weekend into doing it, and I'm still processing over what this means. By killing the hostility in himself. Paul seems to be understanding this frame of reference through what many of us, if you've grown around in the church, this language of, of, of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus on the cross died in my place for my sin so that he may give me peace and, and forgiveness and relationship with God. If you've been around the church, this hopefully isn't new for you. But what Paul understands is not just substitutionary atonement vertically, but horizontally, that somehow on the cross, Jesus drew into himself the hostility of between the nations, between groups. He allowed that hostility to kill him. Jesus deliberately drew onto himself, if you were with us in Mark's gospel, you remember seeing the hostility between the Torah observant Jews and the hostility between the Gentiles and the Roman Empire. And in this moment, Jesus gets these two groups that were at war with one another, somehow united as a team specifically to kill Jesus. And so Jesus deliberately drew onto himself the hostility from the Jews and the Gentiles and, and any ethnicity, any popular, any political group in on himself. And because he refused to return, hostility for hostility, which is much of the story of human history, it died with him. And for those who now are in him, who call him Lord, who call him Savior, who call him King, they are now being invited into this reconciled community where the hostility that we bear with one another and might even be genuinely right, just hostility for the ways that we treat one another throughout history. That the only way towards reconciliation is we're able to look at one another and see that that hostility that may even be deserved died with Jesus. So what's insane is that this kills any notion of what we could call white guilt on one hand that I'm actually able to move, motivated for justice and reconciliation, not out of, oh my goodness, what have my people done throughout history? We own that, but we, we allow Jesus to take that and carry that for us, that it put him to death. The death deserving for the injustice doled out by whatever line of I come from. Do you see this? This is what Paul's getting at. This is how big this hostility being killed in him is what he's getting at. The cost and the, 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 the ramifications, and this does not mean that justice stops and we don't move forward but it means that we're motivated out of a place of what he calls peace and reconciliation as opposed to appeasement or us trying to earn something. Motivated by love instead of proving something about myself that I'm better than my ancestors. So Jesus deliberately drew the hostility onto himself between Jew and Gentile. He refused to return and it died with him and specifically it now dies for those of us who are in him, to use Paul's language. So he continues and says that the cross now has reconciled us both to God. It has made peace, that through the cross he has preached peace, and that even more, he is our peace. Peace being not just the absence of hostility, but the presence of something greater, of a, of a relationship, of developing one another and, and owning what, this peace that we have, this unity, to use that language, of what he gets at. And this reconciliation, this now peace that we have that is him, is because he has created, he says, in him one new man or one new humanity in place of the two, that is the divided humanity. That the story to go back to Genesis is you've got you know, humanity and these, these good divisions of, of, of man and woman and then from their families, these good divisions of distinctions and family lines that are good, like that there's differences, there's cultural differences. Even after Babel, that, that the scriptures would identify and see there's a, there's a beauty and benefit to the, the, not just the, the, the racial skin tone, but the cultural and the language, these things that we all bring and have. But in him, there's this new humanity 
that doesn't cut those things out, but it redeems them, and we celebrate those within one another as, a, as opposed to letting those continue to be dividing walls of hostility. And so this new humanity, those old ethnic boundaries, those markers, what Paul called ordinances, those ways in which we look and we go, who's in and who's out? Now, this can be over ethnic, this can be over political, this can be over economic. Over here on the west side, this can be about influence and, 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 and clothes that you wear and the car that you drive. Those things that we would distinguish, who's in and who's out, to be in Christ is that those walls have been broken down. They have been abolished for those purposes. And those markers, that the Paul's language of circumcision and um, the kosher food diet and the feast days, is Paul doesn't say that for, for Jewish Christians, those things get, get shot down. Those things don't exist anymore. Paul seems to think those things are worth continuing in. Those are part of your, your story, your heritage, your culture. But you can't allow those to become the dividing wall between who's in and who's out. I would say there's, this is worth another cup of coffee. We're going to be really jazzed up if we do this. Of walking around, for me, I'll just say for me, within many more white evangelical spaces that it may not be circumcision or kosher food diets, but there is a particular way of doing and being church and ways that we carry ourselves that can in many ways serve as a dividing wall of hostility. And so the new humanity is no longer united around our ethnicity, our politics, our nationality, our socioeconomic uh, boundaries, or our, even our interest with something as simple and small as that. That's the way the old humanity does it. This new humanity is united rather around what Paul will, will go on throughout the rest of this, this letter to talk about, our, our faith in the Messiah, in Christ, and the Spirit. Those are the distinguishing markers of who's in and who's out now. So Paul doesn't throw off any and all divide, you know, divisions or differences, distinctions within us in the world. Paul says, but they're no longer ethnic. They're no longer cultural. They're no longer socioeconomic. They are now about claiming who's king and whose power is at work within me. And so this new humanity is not about a colorblind uniformity of a raceless, genderless, kind of like Jesus bots, but it's actually expressed within our unity, in our diversity. This is what we could call true peace. Man, Lynn Kohick, her commentary on Ephesians has me doing laps half of the week. It's so good. She writes this on this passage. She says, unity, we could call peace, unity necessitates that differences remain. Otherwise, one has not unity, but sameness. The unity produced by Christ celebrates difference and the diversity is not asymmetrical in terms of power. She asks, how might this be expressed in churches? First, all believers participate in worship, which centers on God and not their own group's honor or their own group's preferences. Second, all the saints are aware that God shows no favoritism. So their unity should then undercut any social hierarchies that may exist out in the world. The rejection of favoritism helps us understand the true unity Paul desires. It's not about creating uniformity, but about rejecting cultural privilege. The church is a place where the social hierarchies that we have, as Paul says in Galatians, that there is now no longer male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, Scythian or barbarian. Now, this does not mean that Paul doesn't see, like he's just this genderless, raceless, colorblind thing. He sees those realities as still being true, but they no longer divide. They no longer become a place of hierarchy. And so if Jesus created this new humanity of peace in place of the old one, how is this new thing enacted? This is the back half of the passage of what we've now become in verse 19. 
So he says, if this horizontal gospel is true, that this is part of the work of what Christ has done, then y'all are no longer strangers and aliens. Your relationship to one another is no longer on, on who is other than me, but rather within this new community, we are fellow citizens with one another. It's a political national language right there, right? So does my relationship to Jesus trump my, my not just my ethnicity, but also my nationality, also my, my political connections? Similarly, he says that you are also no longer strangers and aliens, but now members of the household of God. That is, you are a new family. And in verses 20 and 22, he begins to mix metaphors as he moves from talking about this citizen, this new political group, and this new family, that he starts talking about it like a tree. And then the, he mixes the metaphor again, that it's like a tree that's growing, but then it grows into this giant temple. Paul sees this organic but also organized structure that is the church community that grows in the midst of its diversity. That this new temple is built with with each human being that's a part of of the movement of Jesus, like this mosaic of different colored bricks that all lay onto each other, making this beautiful now temple of people with Jesus himself as the corner, and that is the dwelling place of God. It's the church. Don't miss this. The kingdom of heaven invades and unites the divided empires of man through ordinary, simple, in Ephesians' case, small church communities who express their unity in the midst of their, in the midst of their diversity because of the work of Christ. Paul says that is God's superpower in the world. How he's uniting and restoring a broken humanity is by planting these little church communities where Jew and Gentile, where slave and free, where men and women all are coming together and they are finding in faith and through the work of the Spirit, they're becoming a new humanity. Many of us doubt the power of this because uh, we, we believe that the injustices of this world are just quite too big. Something as small and as simple as like our little church kind of group and gather, you know, that this is, you know, that this would have the power to change over. We don't believe it because we haven't seen it. But the reality is that history attests to this reality. Is when you have these churches that are unified and moving outward into their cities, this is what turns over empires. It's what turned over Rome. It's what's turn, turn, turning over, China. like it's happening within China and it's insane to watch happening in the midst of all that we have. This has been the historical story, and we have, although we have not seen it. A church that through our unity and amid our differences, we begin to bear one another's burdens. We weep with those in the community who weep. We're praying with each other. We're worshiping with each other. We're feasting at the table with each other, and then we're moving out into our lives, serving our cities with one another. Many of us doubt the power of this because we think it's too big. But even for Martin Luther King Jr. himself, he understood this to be the primary vocation and calling of the church. He said in his letters to, uh, from a Birmingham jail, him written while he's in prison to um, a bunch of uh, white uh, pastors in around Birmingham. He says, there was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period that the early church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat that transformed the ways of society. To go back to Malcolm X, Paul's vision for the original church was that those doors would open on Sunday and that he would have all of his questions about the socioeconomic and all the problems out here in the world and emerging from the church doors would be a new humanity. 
something that would cause a, a double take, something that would say that maybe there is something to this Jesus thing. Is there linked arms in service? And so this is not to the exclusion of, of, of our political engagement, of, of getting out there into the world and the ways that we serve and minister and, and use our voice, but rather Paul, I believe, really, really, really wants us to see that there is a matter of priority and focus and attention to us, the church community. For Paul, I think he would, he would kind of be dumbfounded to see a, a churches moving out as individuals, all trying to do work with injustice, but then completely disengaged from one another on a weekly basis. He said, you guys are cutting yourself off from the very power of how you're going to be able to engage at some level. It is through you guys coming together and specifically around your differences and you learning to have hard conversations of what it means to bear one another's burdens, to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, that that's going to set you to be the new humanity that's actually going to be able to say something to the world because you actually have a solution now instead of just going after the issues. But sadly, this has not been our experiences. In many ways, the church, at least as many of us have known, has failed to be the temple. In many ways, because we have either rebuilt or at least been apathetic to those walls that Jesus himself tore down. As Pastor Dr. Eric Mason puts it, that the uh, black church, or we could fill in with this in, in America, the Korean, the Chinese, the Latino church in America, exists because the white church failed to be the church. It is specifically over the segregation happening within these, these this, is, this is the story. When you drive by those churches that, that are identifying themselves within their particular ethnicity, it's because they were driven out of those other churches in the predominantly white space. So we have to be really aware here that there is something that our, the American church has fundamentally missed in the back half of Ephesians 2, Yes? Paul says the power of the church is when it is unified in their diversity, specifically along cultural, ethnic, socioeconomic lines. And we wonder why the church feels like it's losing ground culturally, and why churches are closing down and people are leaving the faith. Maybe we've cut ourselves off from the temple and the dwelling place of God. And all of this then comes back to what I believe it's due in many things, is that what was the seedbed to this kind of breakdown? was what we could call a half gospel, maybe a perverted gospel if we want to get really strong, which is a vertical-only gospel, to go back to what we talked about at the beginning. A vertical-only gospel that then seems our horizontal relationships and work as being extracurricular at best, if not a distraction or if not an outright danger to the gospel. But if what we've just read in Ephesians chapter 2 in the back half here I think Paul would be dumbfounded, if not enraged, by Christian resistance to reconciliation and justice under the cry for pastors to just preach the gospel. Paul would, 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 would retort, what gospel are you talking about? It's, it's certainly not the one that I found in the teachings of Jesus. It's certainly not the one that I've written about. It's certainly not one that flows from the story of the Old Testament of God bringing the nations back together in justice and righteousness. What gospel are you talking about? This vertical-only gospel, or in keeping with what we've been focusing on in the midst of our Collective Again series, an individualist gospel. An individualist gospel, which is a false gospel, convinced that one, that he or she can love and serve God apart from loving and serving their neighbor. 
specifically those which there is hostility directed towards in the midst of. This individualist gospel that believes that I can participate in resurrection apart from reconciliation. This one that believes I can have Christ without being and belonging to the church. This is what sets us up for then to be able to look at the injustices within our city from a posture and perspective that it doesn't really matter. That it's extracurricular at best because what's most important is the doctrine of justification and getting souls into heaven. This is vertical only. Paul has a more robust gospel that is not the exclusion of the vertical, but the inclusion of the horizontal. And though Paul's focus here is on ethnic and on the racial uh, disparities and uh, um, hostilities of experience, we, we can't afford to miss that at a larger level within the individualism and all that's going on, the true gospel doesn't just save souls. It unifies a people and a family. So this radically transforms not just the conversations around race and justice, but like how I build my week and the people that I give myself to and what I do with my time and my prayers and my money and my attention. That to be made alive, the resurrection reality exists and happens within our horizontal relationships. To cut ourselves off from one is in some way to cut ourselves off from the other. The true gospel is a robust vertical and horizontal collective story results in a unified collective, new humanity, a new kingdom, a new family, and a new temple. And the deep need for us on the other side of 2020 is not for the church to tack on some extracurricular justice or political agenda, but rather, I believe Paul is calling us to, to to understand the horizontal and the vertical in relationship to one another, and not, as many of us can be prone to do, to jettison the vertical for the sake of the horizontal. Paul involves us into a tension between the two. And so the invitation of us today, as we continue through Ephesians, continue to ask, who are we going to be? What church are we going to be on the other side of 2020? Today is an invitation to turn from our individualist, our vertical-only gospels, to regain a full scope of the vertical, horizontal gospel, what we could call what it means to be collective again. That This is what Jesus' this whole thing is about. Let's pray.